it's almost as though Western sport has sleepwalked into this without paying attention, without asking questions, without confronting some of the difficult issues. And so for me, the last seven to 10 days, you know, this is, this is the reckoning. Hi, everyone, and welcome once again to the Sports Pro Podcast. I'm your host, Owen Connolly, taking you through another weekly wrap of news from in and around the sports industry. Delighted to have with me, uh, or to welcome back to the podcast, Professor Simon Chadwick, Global Professor of Sports at EM Leon Business School. Hello, Simon. Hi, Owen. Back again. Back again. Back again as well. Uh, Rob Harris, Global Sports Correspondent at the AP and host of the Sport Unlocked podcast. Hello, Rob. Hi, great to join you. Hello. Normally means something bad might have happened in the world of sport. Well, in the world of sport and in the world more generally, I think, you know, we, we talk about a wrap of the week's news. I think it's been very well dominated by one very sad, very troubling turn of events, uh, the invasion of Ukraine by Vladimir Putin's Russian government. Um, and Russian regime, it's all, you know, I think I've said it before, it all puts kind of the sports side of things into perspective. But of course, the um, very deep involvement of Russia and the Russian government in sport over the last 10 years in particular um, means that it's it's an unavoidable topic to discuss, even if perhaps it's Importance is um, is is put into context by by what people are going through. Um, Simon, I mean, we will talk about the kind of geopolitical ramifications of this, as as you know, you're always um, very well placed to do. But Rob, from your perspective, it's it's things have gone at an absolutely extraordinary rate in the last week, um, both in the real world context and in the context of um, of sport and, and the sports business. Um, uh, for want of a better question, I mean, what what has um, what what's it been like in the last week dealing with people? What's the what's the mood been of people that you've dealt with? You know, we, we've gone from a position where it was what are we going to do about Russia to Russia now being more or less a, a pariah state, um, at least in competitive terms in in world sport. Um, but you know, the conversations you've had with people, what what has the atmosphere been? I suppose it's been really unusual, hasn't it? Because we're sort of trying to follow the sports world while at the same time there is the incredibly unpredictable Russian advance on Ukraine. The fact is we're sort of speaking against the backdrop of the type of thing we didn't imagine to be happening in Europe in the 21st century. One nation sending its tanks in, going in to invade another's territory to seize territory. And that's where we're at at the moment. And obviously sports has then had to, you know, not only grapple with the consequences but also being actually party to some of the fallout because we noticed in the opening days of the war and even in the build-up to Russia going in as that aggressive tone and rhetoric was ramping up from Vladimir Putin that there was concern in political circles about sports events being in Russia about Russia having the prestige of events like the Champions League final and it's why the European Commission French President Emmanuel Macron were in contact with the UEFA president, Alexander Sheffrin, which ultimately led to the decision to remove those events from Russia. There was a pace of movement through last week and uh, 
you know, it almost seems an eternity ago. Another Champions League final was moved from St. Petersburg only last week. Since then, the suspension of Russia from FIFA and UEFA or the other sports in varying degrees as well, punishing Russia. And, you know, we've probably seen actually which sports are more proactive than others and which are actually cautious about condemning Russia and which are actually more on the front foot. Yeah, and where do you where do you feel like the pressure has come from? Beyond obviously the events have their own bearing, and in this case, the, ultimately organisations like FIFA have have seen the situation as being clear cut enough to act as decisively as they did in the end. You know, because it it was a a process of of degrees um, in the case of FIFA in particular. But has the pressure come from governments? Has it come from um, has it come from partners? Has it come from just the sheer weight of public opinion or, or kind of the logistical impossibility of involving Russia in, um, in, in, for example, national national team matches? I mean, I think one paper put it as FIFA being shamed into taking action. And uh, that really reflects how we saw for several days Poland and their FA ramping up the pressure on FIFA to take action against Russia because Poland are playing Russia in World Cup qualifying in just a few weeks' time. Well, no more, but they were due to be. And, uh, you know, Poland did initially sort of suggest to FIFA, how about a uh, new ve- a neutral venue for the game rather than having to go to Moscow? There was a sense of no response from FIFA to that request. Then on Saturday, they said, actually, they refused to play Russia completely any Russia team. And that was followed by the Czech Republic, by Sweden, who could also potentially face Russia in qualifying. So that's very much where FIFA were at heading into Sunday's meeting of the FIFA Bureau when they ducked out of the decision and said, actually, Russia, you can play on. You can uh, just play on under no flag, no anthem. You can even be known as the Football Union of Russia team. And that was met with immediate protests from Poland, from Sweden, from the Czech Republic. And then we had the U-turn, FIFA absolutely suspending Russia from world football on Monday, although they would see it less of a U-turn, more of a sort of progression from Sunday statement, which actually referenced if there wasn't any sort of easing up of the conflict, then they would take further action. Well, it took less than 24 hours. So you know, how on Sunday they thought something might dramatically change on in 24 hours is uh, beyond me. Simon, I wanted to bring you in. I mean, What's the nature of what we've seen happening here in in the world of sport? Is it, and and what kind of reflections are there on what we're seeing happen elsewhere, where we have these quite deep relationships that are being, um, you know, unravelled or, uh, or or deconstructed at, at speed? There is a there's a a, a book uh, published by Francis Fukuyama called The End of History. And, and this was written immediately after the fall of communism. And uh, I guess the popular, the popular term at that point was, uh, or phrase was, capitalism's won. And if we, 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 we think that Fukuyama's book was written in 1992, this is, this is the year that the Premier League was formed. This is the, the year that uh, the Champions League was, was created. Obviously, it had previously been the European Cup. And so at that point, you know, with, with these two commercial entities and with Fukuyama saying that capitalism has won, I think for the remainder of the 90s and into the early part of, uh, of, of, this, of, of the 2000s, 
that's that's how sport was. That's how football was. Is is that uh, it became very commercial, and we don't need to go into that into a huge amount, amount of detail. But we, we've we've made lots of assumptions about uh, the best league in the world and the power of European sport and television rights and sponsorships and commercial development and so on and so forth. But whilst many people in sport, I think, have been watching the money or following the money. Um, they've not been looking at other things taking place in the world. And, and what we've seen is the reality emerged that capitalism didn't actually win. And what we have is we have, a, have other countries with other political systems, other political values, but also other, other ways of viewing their investments, their economies, beginning to grow and exert their power. And, and one of those is China, another one is Saudi Arabia. We can talk about Qatar, but of course, another one is Russia. And and so when 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 Russia through Vladimir Putin um, began to exert its influence on sport, I, I think Putin really understands sport and the power of sport. And and when he began to began to engage with sport and deploy sport, everybody in the West in in the West in Europe and the United States simply thought, well, okay, he's got lots of money and capitalism won. And what we didn't pay attention to was, I think, you know, in actual fact, capitalism hadn't won. There was something else that was happening. But also that what Putin wasn't wasn't doing, he, he wasn't giving away free money. As we now know, what he was doing is he was building, uh, he was being trying to build a geopolitical empire. And it's almost as though Western sport has sleepwalked into this without paying attention, without asking questions, without confronting some of the difficult issues and so for me the last seven to ten days you know this is this is the reckoning you know if, if, if you uh, what you do one day comes back the next day to haunt you and and this is a period of reckoning and, and I think I hope that what sport does is moving on from here that it thinks more carefully and fundamentally about where it goes next um, what worries me more is that even if this dissipates into an episode in history and we return to a period of calm. I just worry that the same mistakes will be made again. Mm. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the future of, uh, of sport in that context towards the end of the podcast, but, and, and the future of some of the sports organizations that, and, and how they operate um, on those terms, you know, but, but I wanted to think a little just while we're, while we're setting the terms about, sports washing and the nature of sports washing and, and you know it's often taken to be that countries invest in sports to, to alter their reputations and to an extent that's true but to an, another extent particularly when you think about the way that someone like Vladimir Putin operates there's an operation where you're trying to sow some ambiguity you're trying to sow apathy about the the way the world works basically um capitalism you know, maybe in a in a contest, or certainly liberal capitalism, maybe in a contest, but capital broadly isn't. Um, you know, money talks. And the other thing that's happening is Russia has kind of um, taken the route of. You know, Russia has a seat on the UN Security Council. It's involved in a lot of international organisations and supranational organisations, and it kind of distorts and toxifies them from within or it has done in, in the last 10 years certainly um or 10 15 years you know they, they, is that is there kind of are they replicating that approach in sport or is there has there been something subtly different happening there i mean obviously I've, i spend a lot of time thinking about such, such matters um i've been I've, I've been going to poland for nearly, nearly 25 years um 
literally two or three times a year, every every year for 25 years. And and some of the issues that that the, the that Western Europe is is now having to confront, I think Central and Eastern Europe have been having to confront those issues for a, for a lot longer. And and of course in Western Europe we've we've had a tendency to 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 you know, we, we, we label it sport washing or sometimes we label it soft power. But certainly over the last few days, I've reflected a little bit more in depth about whether is it sport washing or is it soft power? And, and that's led me to the conclusion that you know, is, is Putin a good boxer? Because what it seems to be is, is, is for, for every, every right hook that Putin lands, you've got to be careful for the left hook coming in. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you're watching one hand, you forget to look at the other. And, and the reason I think about this is, is you know, if we go back to the 2018 World Cup, we came out of the 2018 World Cup with people saying, well, I went to Russia and I had a great time and it was really hospitable and really safe. And, I, you know, people were really nice. And yet only two years earlier, there were criminal organized thugs beating people up around France and not just the English in Marseille, they attacked the Irish, they attacked the Poles and several others across uh, um, across France. And then go back beyond that to 2014. You know, in 2014, organized the Olympic Games. In reality, thinking back to that, there was some controversy around the Olympic Games, but relatively little. You know, geopolitically, we didn't question Russia's staging of the Games necessarily. But then only a matter of two or three weeks after, Russia invaded Ukraine. And so it, it is almost, this, it, it's, it's almost, as I say, rather than sport washing or soft power, it's, the, it's Russia's duplicitous use, or should I say Putin's duplicitous use of sport that has perhaps been more striking. And I, I, just to give another example, whilst we've all switched on the TV and watched the Champions League and we've heard the, uh, the the Champions League anthem, we've seen the Gazprom ad, we've thought, well, you know, what do they do? We haven't really questioned it or scrutinized it. So it's been relatively benign in that sense. It's been part of the landscape. And yet at the same time, you go to Ukraine, you go to Poland, you go into Germany, and yet that Gazprom and, and the North Stream 1 and 2 pipelines, and for that matter, the aborted South Stream 1, pipeline which is an, another story again you know that was going ahead and 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 so as i said it is kind of sport, sport watching it is kind of, of of soft power but it is more about the divisive and duplicitous use of sport that on the one hand seduces and on the other hand completely deceives and i think we will we will return to some of those themes as as we go on um rob I um, didn't detect an answer to your initial question when you asked it, but did Gianni Infantino uh, return his presidential medal of freedom from Vladimir Putin? Order of friendship, the medal. Uh, no word yet from FIFA if he has returned it. Uh, interestingly, sometimes some people might think those questions sound like an ambush or we have every right to ask them. I'd actually asked FIFA that question about uh, seven, eight hours earlier in the day by email. So to actually find out, is he going to hand back this uh, order of uh, friendship medal? And, you know, it might seem a sort of side issue, but we actually have seen even the IOC withdraw the Olympic order from Vladimir Putin. And mm. some of these things are symbolically significant because even when he received it in 2019, there were so many questions about Infantino's relationship with Vladimir Putin, about his close association, about the rhetoric you know, I don't think anyone was doubting that 
you know, he had a right to meet Vladimir Putin around the 2018 World Cup to discuss about logistical matters and the delivery of a tournament, if we were to accept it was going ahead there. And of course, there were many who questioned if it should go ahead, including actually Nick Clegg, now one of the bosses of uh, Facebook, Meta, when he was Deputy Prime Minister of the UK in 2014. He said that uh, coming months after the uh, annexation of Crimea, the shooting down of MH17 uh, over eastern Ukraine, and also, um, you know, more widely, obviously, um, discriminatory laws too in Russia. So it was his language, his rhetoric, uh, things like saying we're on the same team and really advocating how the world had seen a new Russia at the World Cup. And this was a different Russia and basically everyone had got Russia wrong. And almost comes back to that previous point Simon's making about what Russia did people see. Well, I don't think anyone really expected that ordinary fans were going to get harangued and harassed by normal Russians and not wanting to see them and be welcoming in any way. You can separate the government and leadership of a country with the everyday people and how they might welcome to you in, in their cities and towns all across the country. But it still obviously served as not only a platform for Russia to project itself into you know this image, but Gianni Infantino being complicit in abetting a regime in terms of its um, image cleansing in that way, more than just have we delivered a World Cup, it was... Uh, effusive praise of the leadership, particularly of, of Putin, that came from Infantino. Mm. And I think that also speaks to something about the the language and the kind of carriage of, uh, of organizations like FIFA and the IOC when in the, so much of it is couched in those kind of terms of friendship and collaboration and everything is kind of pure. And I think one of the things that struck me on Sunday was that to an extent the... Uh, the Czech and the Polish and the Swedish FAs had decided what's happening right now is more important than the World Cup and we will forego our place in the World Cup if that's what it takes to, you know, for the right thing to happen. And FIFA were almost almost comporting themselves like um, we still think that we want to hold the integrity of the World Cup above the reality of, um, uh, of, of you know, uh, a pretty catastrophic war. Um, and of course, they've, they've kind of rectified that decision um, in the intervening days. But, you know, it does it does strike me that there is a vulnerability to for sport to this kind of um, bad faith acting because of because of that, because of the way that um, because of that. Um, yeah, the way that that, that, that organizations conduct themselves in uh, trying to think how to put it to kind of project this image of, of, uh, of, you know, the sanctity of their own actions. Um, beyond the, the sports politics side of things, and um, again, we'll revisit some of this stuff, there are financial um, realities, Rob, that are still being played out. Um, you have, uh, UEFA has terminated its partnership with Gazprom, and it's terminated it on a financial basis as well as, um, you know, kind of suspending any kind of, uh, com- promotional activities, etc. It's, it's that partnership is over, um, but there are stakes held elsewhere in European football that um, continue to be held, and most notably Roman Abramovich, who uh, issued a curious statement on Saturday evening in the UK um, about his future with Chelsea Football Club. Um, Alisha Rizmanov as well, who was an investor in. Um, uh, in Everton, has uh, been named on the UK's 
sanction list, this initial list of, uh, of Russian oligarchs or Russian connected oligarchs who are, are being sanctioned by the UK government. Um, what's the latest on that? And, and what were your reflections on what happened with Abramovich in, in the first instance? It was quite an extraordinary um, statement, an extraordinary passage of, uh, uh, of events there. Yeah, this was a statement that wasn't expected, wasn't known to be planned before Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the spotlight fell on Vladimir Putin and also Russian oligarchs around the world. So there is a direct link. Abramovich had been named in parliament in the opening days of the conflict and calls for him to sell Chelsea. And this statement probably you know, caused a lot of shock and the phrasing as well was being deconstructed in real time. Some phrasing that we discovered later has no real legal meaning discussing the stewardship and care of the club being handed over to the trustees of the foundation words that are so vague that we don't actually know what they mean but they're meant to be interpreted and they could be interpreted in many ways as as giving up complete control giving up some control the word is he's not looking to sell the club and as it stands now there is no approval for those trustees to even be running the club or to assume any greater function there. The Charity Commission are looking into it. That's quite a procedural matter. In part, the trustees have been at, uh, will be submitting their thoughts on it as well because there are you know, potential conflicts of trust of trustees who are in that position in their other jobs. And also, it doesn't really change much in terms of the decision-making. Who said that? The Chelsea manager, Thomas Tuchel, saying that actually still... Um, the same leadership he'll be dealing with. Uh, Marina Granasteyer, who's director, Petr Cech, former goalkeeper turned technical director. Bruce Buck is the chairman of Chelsea and the chairman of the uh, Trustees Foundation board too, as long with the financial director as well, as well as actually the, the women's team manager, Emma Hayes. So it's not exactly some independent body. Then These aren't people with distance from Abramovich. There was no commitment to say that he will no longer speak to anyone connected with the club, no formal sort of mechanism that we've been presented with. And it looked like being very much an attempt to sort of deflect some of the focus on Abramovich, given the fact that politicians had started to focus on him in terms of demanding he sell up, he end his complete association with Chelsea. And maybe you sort of place alongside that this thing offered in public by his own spokeswoman on Monday, which was linking him to attempts to uh, lead to a peaceful resolution between Poland uh, between Ukraine and Russia and certainly that was extrapolated I would say by some parts of the media to maybe uh, give a greater weight to potentially Abramovich's role uh, the statement just referred to some sort of uh, discussion with the Ukrainian side about uh, bringing about a resolution uh, side was interpreted in many different ways it can mean anything from the government to an individual effectively uh, and, and no real further detail on that he hasn't been seen at the peace talks uh, that were uh, televised and pictures around it as far as i know and if you there's no sense of progress in that but as things stand abramovich is still the chelsea owner still facing calls from within parliament um to sell up uh, chris bryant mp is particularly uh, focusing on him and uh you know, suggesting it's time for um, him to uh, end his association with Chelsea. Mm. And I think notable in Chris Bryant's case that, you know, parliamentary privilege, I think, is a, a factor when when dealing with Abramovich and his um, alleged uh, relationship with, with Vladimir Putin and with the Russian state. Um, 
the I mean that that was an extraordinary episode in in public relations as as much as anything else you know the, and the 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 attempts to kind of spin what was quite a inconsequential as you say ultimately statement but it did um encapsulate some of the complexity that there is when dealing with um russian money in sports simon and you know it goes beyond events and it goes beyond even the bankrolling of uh, international fencing which alish rusmanov has has been um basically doing almost on his own particularly during the pandemic period um the you know this is a very thorny issue and again it perhaps uh it, it perhaps you know is a reflection of how complicated it's going to be to disentangle um financial relationships with russia more widely from the eu from nato countries who are keen to impose sanctions from a very personal perspective um I've worked in university business schools for nearly 30 years. And, and for most of that time, I've been uh, writing about sport, researching, writing, teaching sport. And, and, and over the last 10 years, the nature or the way in which I've done that has changed. Because I think to begin with, sport was just sport. So I started teaching sport, researching sport just after the Premier League had, uh, had been formed. And sport was just sport. And, and then some money started to come in and, started to think much more in terms of brands and sponsorships and, and rights deals and so on and so forth. And then over the last 10 years, it, it, it suddenly occurred to me, ah, right, okay, this is changing again. Um, and I think one, one, of my, my, one of my interpretations of that is, is what we've had over the last 10 days. This hasn't just kind of miraculously appeared from nowhere. We've seen over the last 10 years, I mentioned earlier in the, uh, the recording that um, you, know, you go back to 1992, now, these issues have been heading our way for quite some time. And it is changing the landscape and it has changed the landscape of how sport operates and the way in which it makes its decisions. And uh, I think very, very quickly moving forward from here, uh, we've, got to, you know, we, we've got to start looking at sport in a different way. It requires a change in the way that, that sport is governed, in the way that sport makes decisions, how monitoring and control takes place. And I guess, crucially, the, the, the bottom line in all of this, Owen, is, is that this is incredibly complex because it isn't just about you know, team A against team B. It's also the, 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 the financial, the commercial, economic dimensions of that. But that, in turn, we now know, particularly in the case of Russia and Putin, is 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 linked to geopolitical ambitions and, and some of the, the goals that he has. And I think if we could just take a moment to very simply um, deconstruct what we mean by geopolitical, you know, it's, it's an intersection of geography and politics. And so what we have seen, for example, over the last um, eight years, nine years since UEFA signed its, its Gazprom deal, one of the geographic features of Russia is it has lots of gas. And what it has done is it has deployed that gas supply for for political ends, and 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 this is one of the this is one of the end games of of Russia's politicking. But of course, connected to this has been sport and sponsorship deals, and clubs like Schalke and and, and many other such instances that really have drawn sport centre stage into something much bigger than 
a shirt sponsorship deal or a competition deal or a naming rights deal. And I think I, I, I tweeted it last week. For me, there was a there was a time in sport when when leaders and managers were were ex players and career bureaucrats. And then a little bit later, there was a time in sport when leaders and decision makers in sport, managers in sport, were consultants and people from industry. And now we're living in a time in sport where it's almost as though you've got to be a geopolitical risk analyst and uh, international relations expert to, to, to deal with these things. And that might sound a little extreme, but I think it does reflect the reality of how complex and how sensitive the environment is in which you know even you know even a single football club or a you know a single motor racing team they've got to think very very carefully about what they're getting into what they're committing themselves to and ultimately looking forward when when it might come back to haunt them and i think you know, whether we're talking about the Haas f1 team with its aralkali sponsorship or you're talking about UEFA with Gazprom, or you're we're talking about the IOC taking the, the Olympic Games, or for that matter, the FIFA taking the, the World Cup there. You know, these may have seemed like fairly rational economic decisions to make when they were made, but we now know it was anything but rational economics. Mm -hmm. And what have some of the practical implications been, do you think, of, of some of these sponsorship deals, some of these partnerships, some of the uh, events that have brought perhaps brought different people into the room who might otherwise have had to use different channels, all that type of thing. Do you think, um, am I being too conspiratorial there or is there, have there been opportunities um, for certain introductions to happen and for certain talks to take place as a result of some of these partnerships? If I could respond to that one in two ways. The first way I'll respond is, is and, I, and I'll carry on with my gas from UEFA because, as I said, this is a case that I know pretty well. Um, when UEFA signed the deal with Gazprom, UEFA may have believed that it was simply signing a sponsorship deal. But at that stage, Gazprom was always already deeply involved in manipulating energy markets in Central and Eastern Europe. So you talk to people in Poland, you talk to people in Ukraine. And whilst it's only over the last 10 days that Gazprom, for most West Europeans, has become some kind of, kind of evil giant, you, you, you talk to you know, everyday, ordinary, domestic gas consumers in, in Ukraine or Poland. Gazprom's been there for a long time, manipulating gas markets, causing problems. And for, for many people in Ukraine and Poland, they were very clear about what Putin was doing with Gazprom. So this, for me, this does lead, lead, lead me to ask a question. Um, what, did, what did the people at UEFA think they were signing when they signed the deal back in 2013? You know, this this wasn't a burger business. You know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a, a soft drinks business. This was a political organisation owned by the state selling gas to governments. And and so I think you know the, the kind of checks and balances, the monitoring and control of such deals needed to have been exercised back in 2013, not last week. And more serious questions should have been asked then rather than over the last seven days. The second way that I'll answer your question, Owen, and, and I mean, I, 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 I'm just a normal guy, you know, from a normal, normal background, normal guy. I'd never been in a Champions League corporate hospitality box before. And then suddenly I was invited to go to one and then another one and then another one. And I thought, well, there's almost like a hidden world taking place in these courtside, these corporate hospitality boxes. And these, in many ways, these are unregulated spaces, they're ungoverned spaces. 
So they're not subject to scrutiny. Nobody knows what happens there other than the people who go there. And in my experience, and, and I remember one particular one particular time, I was invited to a corporate hospitality box at a Champions League game, and I took a look around and listened, and I actually said to the person who'd invited me, who are all these Russians? And so for, for me, hospitality suites are, are a form of fast-track diplomacy. And if you think about it, if, if one government puts in a request to speak to an official from an, 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 uh, another government, you know, how long is that going to take? Is it going to take weeks, months? It may even take years in some cases. But we know the seductive appeal of sport. And if you, if you write to someone and you say, hey, come on, join us in a corporate hospitality box, have a drink, have some food, watch the game, be our guest. And so you cut out all the normal diplomatic protocols. And as you say, you, you then have got politicians, um, you know, the kinds of people who are making decisions about, for example, where to buy gas, um, business people who are looking to connections and, and to build investments in these boxes with nobody monitoring, nobody scrutinizing. And I therefore think that what Gazprom has, has done, part of what it has done is to use its sponsorship of the, uh, of the Champions League as, as a way of essentially creating this cross-European, this pan-European Geopolitical, geopolitical network of really important people, the kinds of people who up until now haven't been exposed to scrutiny. Hmm. Rob, I, I think I know the answer to this, given that the speed at which things have um, unfolded, the severity and unpredictability of, of the situation more broadly, but has there been much thought given to what comes next after the, uh, after the, termination of some of these partnerships after the the kind of um after the expulsion of um of russia from competition is there a longer term view of um of what happens here how does russia get potentially brought back into the sporting fold is the question and if we think actually russia is ostracized at the moment appearing at the olympics as the roc appearing at the um, World Cup if they were to have qualified with a different name as well because of those wider sanctions. And we perhaps forget some of the detail of the doping investigation. They had the original case that McLaren investigated the deceptions around the 2014 Sochi Olympics and other sports events, the role of the FSB in swapping out doping samples. Then years later, the attempt to cover up the cover-up the attempt to deny investigators the right to the data to try to unearth the full extent of the scandal. And that's what led to ultimately things like the ban on Russia hosting international sporting events came from, a period that we're still in at this very moment. So beyond even the invasion of uh, Ukraine, there are many reasons why sports should not trust Russia because WADA have actually stated implicitly that they they cannot be trusted on a, a top level because of the the state orchestrated doping scheme so we put that combined with this pariah status from their aggressive actions towards ukraine and let's not forget it's not just about punishing russia or russia denying russian teams and athletes the right to compete this war denies Ukrainian athletes the right to compete. It denies teams to play. It denies them to organize their leagues at the moment. So the aggressive act has actually put a halt to sport and competition, of course, as well as far more serious matters of life and death that we're dealing with mm. in Ukraine. So we then end up sort of looking the long term, which in part is 
what is the end game for this war, which we cannot say at this point. We know that 2014 ultimately led to the gaining of territory by Russia, the annexation of Crimea, the uh, Russian-backed separatists in the east as well, which of course it made it inaccessible for even the likes of Shakhtar Donetsk to play on home soil. So how does this end? A withdrawal, an occupation, uh, which then leads sport to obviously ponder the question about how long should Russia be kept out? And we probably often see how uh, the pariahs are brought back in. Just look at how willing sport has been to maintain an embrace of Russia despite the wider sanctions. We looked to FIFA again. Last year, they held the Beach World Cup in Russia. Technically, the wider sanctions mean that no international sporting events should be in Russia, yet FIFA not only went ahead with it, but there was Puth, um, there was uh, Infantino on his favourite platform, LinkedIn, using that to lavish praise on, on Vladimir Putin, despite the state being subject to these wider restrictions. Mm. I mean... It- yeah, I mean, the extent to which we, you know, it's impossible to see at this moment in time um, a way that you could let Russia back in under anything resembling kind of short or, or medium term circumstances. So that leads you to ask the extent to which the world of sport kind of needs to think of a world or think of itself as a world without Russia, or at least without Russia in an official capacity, even if you have. Um, Russian athletes competing independently um, you know and I suppose what I'm getting at Simon is not so much what what's what does that mean for Russia but what does that mean for a, a sports world that has become accustomed to dealing with Russia in the way that it has you know there are gaps that are going to be filled and uh, what's the way that they're what's the way that they're going to be filled and, and the background to this and I know it's probably something that would be in your answer is Russia diplomatically geopolitically has relationships with other countries that are heavily invested in sport china saudi arabia being two uh, particularly significant ones do they try and enter this void themselves do they try and extend their influence the first thing i'd, I'd like to do is just to go back to uh, to rob and, and on my sheet of paper here it also says trust <laughs> so i i, I want to pick up on rob's point about trust and and it's 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 bizarre because obviously Putin has spent the last ten years trying to get us to trust Russia, and within the space of ten days, we we no longer trust Russia, and and that process of trust building, I think is uh, is is going to be a really important important one, and and the basis upon which uh, trust is re-established has got all kinds of ramifications for everything from how we govern sport through to who we take money from and how you monitor um, athletic performance and engage in drugs testing and so on and so forth. I, I think on the the other thing that I would say about trust is is that trust very, very often is a, is a multidimensional concept. And, and certainly for, 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 for some in sport out there over the last five, 10 years, um, there's been a very strong economic dimension to trust in the sense that, you know, we trust Russia because they're giving us lots of money. Um, and, and so you know, there's, there, there have been some hard lessons that to have been learned, I think, over this uh, over this recent period. But but trust, I think, remains fundamental. But if I can move on to a, a second point, the second response to you, and that is, I don't think we, we should assume anything. 
because implicit within everything that's happened over the last two or three days is is that you know Russia's been sat, is sent to sit on the naughty step, and they're going to sit on the naughty step for six months or a year or two years or three years or however long. And you know, especially if Vladimir Putin is still president, you know, do you, do you really imagine that, that, that Russia's going to sit on the naughty step for six months and, until it served its time? Um, and, and the reason for saying this is, is if you look at if you look at what happened with, for example, the international financial system, Russia, China uh, do not like or did not like the international financial system, in particular, didn't like the World Bank. And they didn't like the World Bank because they believe it's a Western institution set up according to a set of rules formulated by Western institutions. And so Russia, China, as well as uh, India, Brazil, um, set up their own bank, the BRICS, the BRICS Bank. And so what I think we've got to be mindful to the possibility of is that you know, in a world where Certainly over the last decade, Europe and the United States have been losing some of their global power. It's not inconceivable that Putin will say, well, OK, we're, we're ostracized from world sport. We'll set up our own institutions. And so I think the, the, the acid test then becomes, you know, does China join Russia? Um, do the likes of you know, Iran? And for that matter, we've seen very little noise coming out of the Gulf region. You know, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Qatar have not said a lot about, about what Russia has been doing. And so you know, for us to imagine that somehow, you know, give it three years and everything will be normal again. Or you know, like the pandemic, you know, give it two years and everything will be normal again. I don't think we can make that assumption. At the same time, it could well be that, that given that there is this, um, it's almost like a moral vacuum as, 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 as much as it is an economic or a, a political vacuum in some of these institutions like the IOC and FIFA, it could be that, that China senses an opportunity, especially if China is looking ahead to the 2030 World Cup, for example. So I, th I think that you know, we may see Russia just sits and waits out its time. It could be that Russia resists and sets, it, sets up its own institutions and others will join it. Or it could be that, as I say, there are other countries that will take advantage of Russia's weakened position, but also of some of the problems that these sports governing bodies now have and will step in and replace Russia. But I do think, don't assume anything. Yeah, and I mean, you know, further complicating this picture, we, yeah, as you say, we are coming out of a two-year pandemic that's created a lot of economic turbulence in and of itself it's created a lot of uh financial shortfalls for for some of these organizations you have inflationary pressure you have the likelihood of interest rates going up in in countries around the world which will make it harder to borrow basically there's going to be people looking for cash and that always uh creates vulnerabilities um of its own the point about trust it's something that the Putin regime has manipulated. Coming back to what I said earlier about the way that it's used institutions who are intended to be arbiters of um, of fair play and, and morality, whether that's the UN or whether that's the IOC and FIFA. And it's kind of one of the positions that Vladimir Putin's lost in the last week as, a, as an honorary president of the International Judo Federation. He is a, a judoka and he's kind of used some of the um, sense of self-worth of those organizations against themselves, if that sentence makes sense. He's um, particularly in sport, I think. And the fact that something has happened through the conventions of, uh, of, of a FIFA or an IOC has seemed to 
imbue what he's done with a, a sense of, of legitimacy in that respect. And it's you know, the question that I am winding my way to is whether some of those organizations are still fit for purpose. I heard this, you know, it's talked about in the context of the UN on a, on a politics podcast last week, and it made me think the same about FIFA and the same about the IOC in particular, because they are the two biggest, but probably lots of other international sports federations. Rob, is this going to begin again some of the conversations that we've heard in the past decade about whether there is whether it's reform or whether it's kind of starting again from the ground up, whether there will be significant change um, in the way that sports run? You know, we really have seen how perhaps whatever new leaderships we do get in governing bodies that uh, some of the old traits return, some of the issues that return around their way they sort of handle that power and that status. And they can't help being seduced by the close entanglement with world leaders. These are people who are often just sports administrators, low-level rise to the top, like someone like Gianni Infantino, who was just who was a lawyer who rose higher and higher and now finds himself, as he sees himself, on a par with world leaders and sharing that same space, holding meetings at things like the UN and all going around the world to the G20 and believes that actually he has this status and he has the right to mix with the world leaders. But actually, he's, someone like the FIFA president has greater obligations ultimately to the sport. He is, in many regards, just you know, several, many steps up from, say, the president of your local tennis club or golf club or athletics. Like, you know, he's there ultimately just to oversee the well-being of uh, the game. And if we think back as well to the reforms of FIFA of 2015 after the, the, the scandal, the arrest at the Borough and ultimately the removal of Sepp Blatter, then the FIFA president should actually have a more diminished function and the chief executive should actually be the one to be running FIFA on a day-to-day -day basis. Who did Infantino bring in in 2016 as General Secretary? Fatma Samora, a former UN official. Perfectly placed, you would think, to navigate these delicate diplomatic and geopolitical issues. And yet, publicly at least, and certainly the images from all the meetings that take place, she's not there. It's all Gianni Infantino, front and centre. Uh, you know, almost relishing the sort of status and power. Simon? So, yeah, as I've been listening, Owen, um, I wrote some some more notes and, and I wrote two questions. On what basis is sport governed and, and by whom? And I think those questions are, are, are as applicable to this particular episode as they are to countless other episodes over the last decade. And and somebody asked me the question a week or two ago, what, what, are, what do you think about global, global sports governance? And my answer was very simple, rip it up and start again. Because I think... You know, essentially, what you have is a, is, a, is a system of governance that grew out of early 20th century Europe uh, when the world was a very different place. And now what we have is, is it's, it's not just sport, as we've already said, it's, it's business, it's commerce, it's economics, but it's also geopolitical too. But we also have a, have a world in which Western Europe and North America don't, don't dominate anymore. I'm not saying that we've become irrelevant or we're extinct, but we, we, we don't dominate as we did before. There are other countries with different interests and different ways of looking at the world. And I don't think the system of governance that we have in place within many of these organizations is sufficient or appropriate, and to use your words, fit for purpose. Just to set this in, in some context, 
we live in a world now where the kind of post-World War II rules-based order is breaking down. So these were rules created by the victors, uh, the United States and, and the Allies in the Second World War. And, and this might sound uh, you know, a, a little bit irrelevant, but essentially the modern world has lived its life and, and, and undertaken business, organized sport and you know, concluded sponsorship deals and so on and so forth based upon this kind of notion that there are rules that we must all apply, uh, abide with. We live nowadays in, in, a, in a world where there are countries and people who are questioning those rules because they're Western rules. But there, there are also people who believe that rather than operating in terms of rules, we, we should be thinking in terms of deals and we should, we should exist in a deals-based order. And so for sport, I think one of the well, I think what's happened over, over, the, over the last 10 days, you know, there's been a tipping point. For sport, the tipping point has come very, very quickly. And, and no matter what happens from here, I don't think that sports governance can ever be the same again. It has to be different. It has to change. But I think, as Rob said, you know, what you've got to keep in mind is most of the people working inside these governing bodies, they're, they're either on, you know, they, they're target-driven business people. They've got, to make their, they've got to make their numbers or they're out. Or alternatively, they're career bureaucrats. And I don't think career bureaucrats or people who are looking to turn over numbers are the people that we need in charge of these types of organizations. Fatma Samura, in principle, was a good appointment, but we've got to be looking to ensuring that it doesn't just look good, that it is good, and that the people that are there are able to make genuine change, because otherwise what we're going to get is this disconnect and this misalignment of, of what these governors are trying to do and what the reality of sport in the 21st century actually is. Yeah. Well, we've been covering topics, I think, that are, you know, challenging, difficult, and also probably extensive enough to cover entire books, never mind podcasts or podcast series. Um, but we've also spent, you know, the entirety of this podcast talking about Russia. Um, and of course, the, the, the victims here, the real story here is, uh, is, is the people of Ukraine. I mean, I want to leave things on a constructive note, a positive, well, not positive, but certainly a constructive note if, if we can. I mean, what do either of you think sports role can be here in supporting uh, Ukraine over the over what's going to be a very difficult period? Well, I mean, UEFA has played a key role in uh, helping to ensure the safe passage of footballers out of Ukraine. That's the immediate priority. And the fact is we've had that now twice in the last year, we had it in Afghanistan with the urgent need to get players out of Afghanistan, particularly the female footballers. And here we are, sport having to actually step up to ensure welfare. And in fact, both times, FIFA doesn't like to hear it, but others do say that FIFA has looked slower in terms of actually using its status and power to ultimately protect the welfare of players and to to get them out of a danger zone. So, you know, that's one significant factor. It's, uh, you know, obviously so much of the future is aligned with what is the future of Ukraine and how safe is it? What What is the country? How will it be functioning in the coming weeks, months and years? And obviously sport can appear secondary, but it's obviously at the heart of the nation. So you actually do want athletes and leagues to be able to function and for that to be, you know, something they're able to, to do you know so ukraine has the right to be able to qualify for the uh, for the world cup the fact is it has its qualifier in a few weeks against scotland and the scottish fa have offered their assistance to help 
the Ukrainians uh, to play that fixture. Putting aside, obviously, any thought of Scotland trying to win their own long way as a men's team to make the World Cup. And um, let's see if sport does reconsider and reassess, as I asked Gianni Fantina last week at the press conference, how it deals and how it associates with leaders, leaders already with uh, track records and the, the actions that have brought great concerns uh, throughout the world, even at the point of their engagement. I think from my perspective, uh, I've spent a lot of time in Central Europe, uh, Central and Eastern Europe over the last 25 years. Um, amazing people, always very hospitable, generous, you know, really caring, intelligent people. And uh, I send best wishes to um, the people of Ukraine, um, but also to the people of Russia who, who don't accept what is taking place now and don't don't. You know, their Russia is not Vladimir Putin's Russia. Um, I think the the one thing constructive that I would say is is that I I think that you know, with hand on heart and, and feeling very you know, really bad for Ukraine, <clears throat> this particular episode is going to force the global community to think more carefully about who it is and what it does and 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 um, how it engages with different people and organisations around the world. Um, but the one, the one final point I'd like to leave is, is for Europe, for us Europeans, we only seem to have started to care about this since it landed on our doorstep, because we, we've, we've had invasions, we've had human rights abuses, um, you know, we've had military campaigns, we've had assassinations, and I'm not going to name name other countries because I think it would be wrong to single any one country out. But wouldn't it have been great to, to see the IOC or to see FIFA or, for that matter, see, to see UEFA, Formula One, taking similarly strident action um, in the past? And, and so I think the one, the one thing that we owe it to Ukraine to do as a result of everything that's been happening and everything that potentially will still happen is to have a common universal standard that there are certain red lines that sport and sport organizations do not cross. You know, so if there is a military conflict, if there is an invasion, such as the one we're now seeing in Ukraine, then that country is, is kicked out. It's kicked out of events. It's kicked out of international competitions. Um, it's barred from competing. And, and let's not be selective in applying that it just should apply in the case of Ukraine, because that's really what, you know, it's about Europeans worrying about European things. And that's partly what this bigger issue is all about. But what I would like to see is is is, is a much more global and, and um, transnational approach to this kind of issue. Okay, well, we will see what happens next. Um, and everything has been moving incredibly quickly, as I think we've said a few times on this podcast. And naturally, all of our thoughts go to the people of Ukraine. Um, at this extraordinarily difficult time but we will have to leave it there for this episode of the Sports Pro Podcast thank you again to Rob Harris great to join you and to Professor Simon Chadwick thank you Owen hopefully next time it will be something more uh, positive that we can talk about yeah let's hope so uh, but until then the Sports Pro Podcast is published by Sports Pro Media and your producer is Jack Darcy. You'll be hearing from us again very soon. Thanks very much for listening. Bye-bye.